No, you should be okay. Okay, so let me ask a question. Has anybody ever made meringue? Do you even know what meringue is? Yes? Okay, what's meringue? Oh, okay, so yes, you can make meringue cookies, which is egg whites and some sugar and a little cream of tartare and some different things, and you bake them, and they're, they just melt in your mouth, don't they? Yeah, they're really good. Okay, meringue also goes on pies, and you use it for all different kinds of things in bacon. Okay, so here's the deal with meringue. So meringue works where you take egg whites and sugar, and you have to beat them. Not with a stick or a paddle, but you have to whip them until they get light and fluffy. They turn white and they get hard. So once upon a time, people who cooked would use something like this, right? Okay. And so could you imagine taking this and whipping egg whites with this until it became really white? It takes actually a really long time. So go ahead and hold that and see if you can spin that and tell me... Oh, huh. It takes a little strength, doesn't it? People who used to cook, they had really big forearms way back in the day, right? <laughs> okay, somebody's going to mangle. Anybody else want to try that? You think you can make it go? Oh, you see how that is? Now, that one's a little stiff. I imagine once upon a time it actually worked a little bit better. Okay, so could you imagine doing that for like five minutes? Oh, yeah. Oh. Okay, see, she's got forearms because she cooks with her mom. <laughs> okay, let's give Max somebody's. Dad, I, I, I don't know how to do it. No, no, put your thumb there. It'll get chewed off. That would be bad. Oh, see that? Yeah. Okay, 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 okay. That's a lot of work, right? Okay, so at some point, somebody had this great idea, and they came up with this. Does anybody know what this is? An electric mixer. That's what you use? Do you think it works a lot better than that little handheld mixer? Yeah. Okay, so hold this. Let's make sure it's off. If we plug that in. Oh, no. Okay, it turned it on. Oh, look at that. Oh, it's got turbo. Okay. All right, turn it off before somebody gets killed. Okay. So do you think that whipping egg whites with this would be easier or harder than that other one? Easier. Easier, right? Okay. So here's the deal. Paul is talking about in our text that you used to live one way, but now we live another way. And I think what he's saying is you used to live like that hand mixer where things kind of worked, but they didn't really work. And instead, God is coming. He is showing us a new way, and it's like an electric mixer, but it's even better than an electric mixer. What God is like is like this. Whoa. Okay, you need to hold that. You want to hold something? Okay, this is going to collapse and kill somebody. All right. Children's sermons are always an adventure, right, guys? Yeah. Yeah. We're still trying to get the whole live lobster one in. Yeah. We'll get there. A live lobster? A live lobster. Okay. So, this is what the kingdom of God is like. It's a really big mixer. 
So if we take egg whites and we put these in here, the bowl should be chilled. It's actually kind of complicated. And then we put sugar in here. Yeah, the whole thing. And then we take and turn this thing on. Okay, no fingers, but come over here and stand here. Well, here, give me these. Okay, so tell me what's happening. What's going on in there? It's turning white. Is it done yet? No. It, no, it doesn't go any faster. This is as fast as it goes. Okay, do you see it? It's getting white, okay? We're still not there yet. Yeah. So what it's doing is it's taking and whipping those egg whites and adding air, and it's going to make them fluffy. Okay? Okay, don't get too close. No fingers, no hair. Do you see that thing spinning around? That would be bad. That would eat you. Okay, so here, I'm going to actually turn it off because this is going to take a while. If we pull that down, do you see how soupy that still is? It's not done yet. It actually gets really stiff, and you can make peaks and stuff with it, and you can take it, squeeze it out of the tube, and turn it into cookies. It takes a while. So again, could you imagine trying to make meringue by just using a hand mixer? No, it would take forever. Go ahead and grab a seat. Again, what Paul is saying is, there was this way you used to live, and it didn't really work. But now in Christ, we have this new way to live. And at times, it's going to seem hard, but it's actually a much better way to, to live. Okay, let's not play with that. Yeah, that's an electric cord. Okay. What, um, what Pastor Mike should not be doing. Um, so we're going to kind of deal with that. Are you going to take the kids and go with them? I'm going to pray for you guys because Miss Sandy's here today. You guys get candy. And then I'm going to send you. <laughs> I think she's just trying to get you guys to. Yeah, we're not going to. I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to send you guys out. And then, yeah, we're going to kind of talk about this passage one more time. Okay, so let's pray. Lord, I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts, even little hearts, that they would be acceptable in your sight. For you, Lord, alone are both our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Okay. I have, there's a couple smarties still in here. There's, yeah, there's some Hershey Kisses. Okay, just one next. She's got. There you go. All right. Oh. Meringue. Who's ever made meringue? Meringue cookies. Yeah, meringue cookies are yum. Tess, if I'd been more thoughtful, we could have made some yesterday and yeah, had those. That would have been great. Okay, so. We are currently looking at chapters 5 and 6 out of Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth. These chapters, when they are taught on, if a pastor would to teach on them, typically raise the question of church discipline. And they are used as a basis for removing someone from the church. For basically telling someone that you are no longer welcome here. 
Now, as much as I might want to utter those words sometimes in certain circumstances with some people, I've never actually seen a situation in the church that would require that level of discipline. It's the only place in scriptures that we see, at least in the New Testament, that Paul would be that rigorous with someone in their sin. There are times that I believe we might need to take our sins a little more seriously or that we might need to recognize that that is actually sin. But to tell someone that they're not welcome, to tell someone that they need to leave and not return, that's, that one's outside my box a little bit. Here's a situation, if you remember from last week. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. So when Paul says the church is to look different from the world, what I don't think he had in mind was this idea of sinning more boldly. I don't think he had in mind that we would invent ways to sin that even the world had not thought about. Paul loves, and when you read his letters, he loves to talk about our freedom in Christ. But the freedom he describes is the freedom from sin, not to sin. And the church in Corinth is wrestling with this one a little bit. And so we have this man who is sinning in a way that even pagans don't tolerate. And what's happening is because of his choices, he is actually creating a problem for the church. He is having an impact on its witness. For whatever reason, and we don't know, it actually doesn't make any sense, but the church has come alongside of him and has become proud. They are boasting about what he is doing, which for Paul is telling us that the church in Corinth is losing its witness. The world is going to look like the world. Don't be surprised, Paul had said. But the church, the church needs to look different. And so Paul's going to wrap up chapter 5 by saying, expel the wicked person from among you. It's actually an Old Testament quote. It's quoted several places in the Old Testament. Again, that guy who is boldly sinning and compromising the witness of the whole church, that guy, Paul says, that guy needs to be removed. Now, this is where it actually gets really interesting. Paul's going to send another letter to the church in Corinth at some time. We don't know when it is. And this is what it says. This is 2 Corinthians. He says, if anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent, not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. So now, instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. Again, this is 2 Corinthians chapter 2, 5 through 8. What's interesting about this text here is that many scholars believe Paul is actually referring back to that man that they had kicked out of the church. Many scholars look at this text and say, Paul's responding and saying, you know what? It's time 
to restore him to fellowship. It's time to invite him back in because the discipline worked. It's actually this beautiful picture of what discipline is supposed to do. It is the why behind discipline. Discipline should always have the focus on the restoration of someone. It's never meant to just punish. And it's a great argument for forgiveness. You know, when the church really is the church, what we are told is that nothing can stand before it, including the gates of hell. When the church is the church, it's amazing what's accomplished. So that was last week. We stepped into these two chapters last week. This week, we're going to continue by turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and we're going to begin reading with verse 1. So if you're using a pew Bible, go ahead and pull that out. You will find our text on pages on page 871 or page 808. For some reason, we have two different printings in our sanctuary. So, yeah, depending on which one you have, it'll be one of those two pages. We list those pages in the bulletin if you ever need to find them. Okay? So chapter 6, verse 1. If any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment? Instead of before the Lord's people. Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? Let's pause here. This is kind of confusing because at the end of chapter 5, if you look back to that last verse of chapter 5, Paul said we are not to judge those in the world. He seems to contradict himself a little bit here, doesn't he? Paul's making a peripheral point, and what he's trying to do is build an argument, and he's referencing this day of judgment. It's, it's called the day of the Lord in the Old Testament when Christ will return and restore all things through judgment. He's not saying go out and judge the world. That's not our job right now. It's a future something that is coming. Okay, back to Scripture. If you are to judge the world, again, in the future, if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? So how much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have any disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother takes another to court, and this in front of unbelievers. So in the church at Corinth, right, there was division. That's what we read in the first four chapters. And then last week we talked about sexual immorality. And now we find that the Christians are taking one another to court. That they are suing one another and they are turning to the Roman courts to do this. On one level, this is really upsetting to Paul because as a Jew, Jews would never have gone to Rome to settle their disputes. Court was held in the synagogue. They would try cases within the community, which as a side note, makes Jesus' trial actually really interesting. The fact that they take him to Rome. But that's a side note. If the church is 
to look different from the world, if our eyes are to be open to a different way to live, then Paul is asking, why would you turn to the world to settle your disputes? Why would you return to the old way of doing things? I can imagine Paul sitting there as he's writing this letter, just rubbing his head and asking himself, what were they thinking? Why would they return? It's kind of like making meringue the old way, right? What kind of a witness does the church have if we have to turn to the world to solve our problems? What does that communicate about God? Paul's going to continue and he's going to drive this point home with verse 7. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? So last week we looked at the issues of sexual immorality and greed, idolatry, and swindling. And I said to you all, I said, you know, I don't think our church necessarily wrestles with those issues that we find listed in chapter 5. I don't see within our church pride in boasting over sin in those ways. But then I went to say, you know what, next week, this is going to get good next week. Because what we see next week is going to actually get a little tricky. Does anybody remember me saying next week? Okay, we're here. It's next week. And this is what Paul is talking about. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? You know, we read this, and I think we want to read it as hyperbole, right? We want to say that Paul didn't actually mean that we should let ourselves be taken advantage of. Isn't that how we want to read this text? These words are not comfortable words. We might be able to do that if we weren't paying any attention to what Jesus had once said. So some of you might remember this story. I think I've told it in the past. You know, when I was working with college students at the University of Pittsburgh after our Wednesday evening fellowship, I would sit with a handful of students in my office, and we would challenge one another to actually live out the words of Jesus. It was a lot of fun. We had some great, great times. The challenge was, what could Jesus do with our lives if we actually gave him the chance? So we were in a series on the Sermon on the Mount, which is recorded for us in Matthew chapter 5. And Jesus says some particularly hyperbolic things in that sermon. This is what he says. He says, you have heard that it was said eye for eye and tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if, everyone, if anyone wants to sue you, if anyone wants to sue you, then take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. It's a tough, tough text. So after we were looking at this text, and as we sat there in my office, you know what we challenged one another to do? It's not like we were suing each other in college or anything. But we lived in the city, and the challenge we put before each other is why not give to anyone who asks? 
Jesus said it, what could he do with our lives? So a couple days later, I'm putting gas in my car at one of the gas stations in Oakland, and this older gentleman approaches me, and he asks for $20. And he gives me a story, which I know is just a story, but there is this part of me that is hoping for something more. I mean, we just ask, what could Jesus do? And so I'm longing for God to show up in a big way. So I reach into my pocket, and I realize I have a $20 bill. I never carried cash with me. I never had money. Nick and I were raising four kids. I was the only one working. I didn't make anything. Yeah, 20 bucks was a lot of money back then. So I gave him the 20, and I blessed him, and he walked away. And it kind of felt good. At least it felt faithful. Because I'm trying to learn a new way, right? Well, about a year later, I heard someone in the church, and they were talking with one of my coworkers, and the story sounded familiar, right? We had people in the church constantly looking for help, looking for money. And so I followed the voices, and here's this same gentleman with the same story. And then I had one of those less than amazing moments as I look back over my life. I interrupted the conversation to ask the gentleman if he had remembered me. And that's when things just went off the rail. There's this short, older gentleman with a cane standing there. Picture a Harry Hamburg, okay? We're talking small. And he starts threatening me with that cane. And I'm threatening to take his cane and do inappropriate things with his cane. It was not a great moment, okay? I said that, right? Paul is saying... Why not rather be wrong? Why not rather be cheated? Let's be honest. Who here likes that idea? Who likes the idea of being cheated or likes the idea of being wronged? Am I the only one who suffers and struggles with this one? No. I think as Americans, this is something we all wrestle with. It might just be a, a human condition. I know it's a huge issue for me the number of times in Pittsburgh. I thought I was getting pretty good at this discernment thing about what people were looking for. You know, one night I walk out of the house. It's late. I'm going across the street to pick up something from a neighbor. A guy asked me for a couple bucks. He's like, I'll give you my watch to hold as collateral. I'll bring the cash back. He's okay. He's just asking for a loan. So I give him the money. He hands me his watch. We get, I get back into the house, and everybody's at the house, and I'm sharing this story with them, and they're like, can we see the watch? And so I hand the watch over, and they're like, that watch is broken. It says like 3 o'clock. It's 9 o'clock at night, Mike. Didn't you pay any attention? And I'm like, again, like I was this magnet for just getting stuck in the city. Why not rather be cheated? Why not rather be wronged? The church is supposed to look different than the world. Our witness actually depends upon it. And God's name is at stake. Again, when Paul talks about sexual immorality and greed and idolatry and slander, drunkards and swindlers, I think we can say, yes, Paul, we hear you. We can see how those behaviors are problematic. 
But when he says, wouldn't it be better to be wronged? Wouldn't it be better to be cheated? I think we want to say, Paul, you've gone too far. I think what we want to say is, Lord, that's too much. Just a few weeks ago, we re- no, sorry, let me back up for a second. The problem is, is if Paul was the only one who had said those words, we might wrestle with them. But again, Jesus. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. The words that Paul is challenging us with is just an iteration of what Christ is challenging us with. And it is to look different from the world. It is to try something new. So just a few weeks ago, we read at the end of chapter 4, Paul said this. He said, you know what? We, he's talking about the church, we are fools for Christ. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our, our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. And we had read that text a couple weeks back, and Sandy asked the question. She said, how do we actually do that? I hear those words, but how do we actually apply those? Everything Paul is trying to encourage us to in Corinthians here is not to seek out persecution. But he wants us to change the way we think. He's saying we need to stop thinking about things the way the world does. And we need to start focusing our lives on God. It's great, great stuff. Verse 8, back to 1 Corinthians 6. So instead, you yourselves cheat and you do wrong and you do this to your brothers and sisters. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who sleep have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. It's a long list. But do you see what Paul's doing here? Paul is saying that those lawsuits, those are no different than these other sins. It's all sin. And then he goes on to say, and that is what some of you were. He's saying you were worldly. But you were washed. But you were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Who you were is not who you are. You have been changed. Everything that Paul's talking about, the divisions and the immorality and the lawsuits, those are worldly behaviors. And we no longer belong to that world. In Christ, we belong to the kingdom of God. 
in the early church, there were two different perspectives. And I'll be honest, I think it carries through even to today. Two different philosophies within the church about how to live. You had that belief coming from the ascetics who basically said, you can't do anything that brings about pleasure or joy within your life. You aren't supposed to have fun. What you should really do is seek out persecution. That's one group. I'm sure some of us have heard those types of sermons, been in those types of churches. Paul's going to actually swing back around to them later in the letter because he wants to deal with them. And then there's the libertines who basically said, you know what, there is only pleasure and joy and anything goes. That's who Paul's speaking to right now. Paul is going to continue by responding to the libertines head on. And the way he does this, as I was reading this this last two weeks, he does it in the way that Jim Gaffigan does his comedy skit. Is anybody familiar with Jim Gaffigan? Anybody ever seen Jim Gaffigan? If you've never seen Jim Gaffigan, he tells a joke. There are times when he tells a joke, and then he changes his voice and pretends he's the audience, and he responds to that joke. You know what I'm I can't do it. It's hysterical, and it's not appropriate to have up on the screen, so we didn't bring it this morning. But they're really funny the way he does this. It's what Paul is doing here as we turn back to verse 12. Paul is going to, and he, he does this throughout his different letters. It's a style he actually likes to write. He's going to start by saying something that the church would say, and then he's going to respond to that with truth. So follow with me because this could be a little tricky. So verse 12 says, I have the right to do anything you say. But here's the deal. Not everything is beneficial. That's what I say. I have the right to do anything you say, but you are not to be mastered by anything I say. You say food for the stomach and stomach for the food, and I am going to tell you that God is going to destroy them both. Paul is saying, and he is hammering this point, that the freedom we have in Christ is actually the freedom to deny ourselves. He's speaking to the libertines here. Paul is saying the freedom you have in Christ is the freedom to care for somebody else, to sacrifice if you really want to be free, then try loving your neighbor. He goes on to say, the body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will, also, he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? And for it is said the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits outside their body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you have received from God, you are not your own. You were bought at a price, and therefore honor God with your bodies. Paul, Paul's going to swing back around to this idea of sexual immorality and this practice that Corinth was in where they would go to temples, Aphrodite and various gods, and engage in prostitution with temple prostitutes. 
But Paul's point is this. Some of you were sexually immoral or idolaters. Some of you were adulterers. Some of you had sex with men who were men. Some of you were thieves and greedy and drunkards and slanderers and swindlers. But you were washed. You were sanctified and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The church, as a community of people who claim Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you need to look different, he is saying. We are no longer members of this world, but members of God's kingdom. We are children of the King. And as such, our lives, both private and communal, are supposed to be signposts. They're supposed to point those of this world to a different way to live, the correct way to live, the way we were designed to live. Paul is worked up in this letter because the witness of the church is on the rocks and God's name is at stake. And this is hard. Seriously, this is hard. Because what God is actually asking of us is to change. And we don't like change. Everything the world tells us, everything we have learned by living in this world stands in stark contrast to what God intended things to look like. At times it might look good. At times it might even feel good. I was talking with someone recently who said being drunk kind of feels good. I said, it, it does. Yes, there is a buzz that comes along with that. I said, but it's also why you might find yourself running up and down the hallway late at night in college, waking everybody up, all your neighbors, and people are going to be ticked off at you the next day. There are consequences to the things that we do, and even though it might feel good or it might look good, <laughs> there's a reason why God said, no, that's not what I intended for you to do. Paul's encouragement to us, and Paul really is encouraging the church here, is to capture and live our lives out of God's grace that we may be freed not to continue in sin, but that we might be freed from sin to live a way that is just magical. That's Paul's point. That's what he's driving at. Let us pray. Lord, the change that you ask of us the change that you direct us to. At times it is hard. I know I don't like being cheated. I, know, I don't like being taken advantage of. And yet what you have modeled for us is a love that is so big, a love that is so broad and deep that you were willing to go to the cross on our behalf, even though we take advantage of you all the time. 
So, Lord, forgive us for our stubbornness, for the places in our lives that we want to just hold on to. Be patient with us. And we ask that you would continue to open our eyes, that we might see what it looks like to live in faithfulness. Lord, to you, we give all praise, honor, and glory. Amen. Please stand if you're able. We're going to sing Breathe. I want us to all think about God's breath in our lungs, how we can.